This episode is brought to you by Dr. Squatch. When your personal care routine needs a refresh, Dr. Squatch is here to help. They have high-performing natural products with no harmful ingredients that'll have you looking and smelling your best. Like the Bay Rum Soap and Deodorant. It smells delightfully spicy. And right now, they have an amazing offer for new customers. Get 20% off your first purchase of any amount or a subscription order by going to drsquatch.com slash Spotify or use the code Spotify at checkout. Hello and welcome to this week's big interview with me, Saul David and Patrick Bishop. Well, coming up, we've got some more material from our trip to Ukraine, and this time with some members of the Halo Trust who are providing vital humanitarian aid on the ground by clearing minefields and unexploded ordnance from Ukraine's soil. And first up, we have a briefing by Pete Smith, Halo's program manager in Ukraine. So, so welcome to uh, Halo Ukraine here in Bravery. Uh, and we're looking forward to taking you around a number of the, the minefields to see some of our uh, men and women that we have on the program that have been with us now for, for several years, some of whom have been in Halo Ukraine since 2015. But as a program, we've been expanding since the beginning of this year. Um, and we're now at some 900 strong, born in the regions of um, Kramatorsk, where was our family home to start with, um, Mikhailov and Kharkiv but also significant numbers of deminers that we've recruited and trained up here in Kyiv. I'm just taking the opportunity to take you through a brief presentation. Mm -hmm. uh, I wasn't going to dwell too much on this. This is just internally that we use for our own security states, because of course this is a country at war. Um, and as well as doing the active job we do of clearing landmines and explosive hazards, um, we've also got to keep our people safe in the communities that they live in, but also um, when they're out on the jobs, uh, working out in the areas and in the fields uh, where we're currently clearing. This is just the timeline of, of the conflict which you'll be familiar with, mm -hmm. but it really just helps us understand um, from those early days where the types of contamination may be and how actually over time um, and in time the war was fought, because in itself that gives us an indication of levels of contamination. In the north of the country, as you're aware, it was a relatively short conflict, mm -hmm. six weeks over and done. Very few areas were really held. But of course, when you get into the southern areas and where the conflict zone is now, there are hardened defences in those currently occupied territories within, um, within Ukraine. And that helps us to understand not just where the conflict was, but the types of munitions that were involved in the conflicts and therefore the types of exploded ordnance that we may, may uh, discover but also some of the tactics that were employed by the uh, Russian forces defending the land that they were temporarily occupying as well. So this map is the current disposition of Halo in Ukraine. Uh, to the north we've got uh, Kyiv where you're currently located at the moment and you can see the minefields to the north in, mm -hmm. in Sumy Oblast, Chernihiv Oblast and indeed the wider Kyiv Oblast. All, all, all laid as the Russians came in at the start of uh, 2022? Certainly the conflict there from yeah. the, the opening salvo, the first four or five weeks. Now, I wouldn't say these are heavily mined minefields. Mm -hmm. There are low density minefields that were hastily laid yeah. so that it was more protective for the, the Russian units that were sleeping at night. Okay. But because there was conflict around there, we're also seeing items of unexploded ordnance, which yeah. also need to be cleared. And the typical mines aren't necessarily just your vehicle mine or your anti-vehicle mine. There are things called OZM-72s, which are 
anti-personnel mines that are triggered by a tripwire, they will bound up a metre and a half and then detonate at that with a lethal radius of some 25 metres. Mm -hmm. And as you were saying, they, that could have been just a unit stopped in an area, they put out a bit of defensive kit basically. What, moved on in a hurry. I mean, normally you take it with you, would you? You're, you're a military that was properly disciplined and was, you know, uh, doing things the right way would deconstruct everything, wouldn't it? You tend to do that, for, A, for your own safety, yeah. but also for the safety of other those people that, that follow on behind you. Mm -hmm. um, but that's the nature of, of hastily laid minefields. And of course, for our teams in the south, in, in Mykolaiv and Kharkiv, where they're much closer to the occupied territories. It's mm. a completely different story. Yeah. Down there, you're seeing heavily, heavily landmined strips of land, largely in agricultural areas, mm. but also butterfly bombs, the PFM1s, those anti-personnel uh, mines that are cast or scattered from a variety of platforms and then just sort of liberally sprinkled across villages and, and the like. Uh, last month, I was down in Mykolaiv and I walked for one and a half kilometers where there was a TM62 mine every single meter of that 1.5 kilometers. Wow. And, and that is clearly in currently occupied um, territories that was taken back by Ukraine yeah. towards the autumn of last year. And that really does give us then an indication of the high levels of contamination that we're going to, to see yeah. once most of the conflict comes to, comes to an end. The occupied territories currently, there's an estimation you've got about a, a thousand kilometre line there. Minefields in some areas three or four deep. Uh, by that I mean layers upon layers of minefields. What sort of distance is that? We've been trying to get a sense of that on the podcast as to how, how deep some of these defences are. Well, I mean, they're not just typically landmines either. So you would get a layered defence. So mm -hmm. you would have minefields, anti-vehicle minefields at the front. We're finding and certainly learning that some of those will also have not just anti-vehicle mines in there, but anti-personnel mines in there yeah. with a view to clearly stopping sappers or, or making sappers think twice about going manually to these uh, minefields. Then potentially behind that, you'll have layers of tank traps, whether that's ditches or whether those are the dragon's teeth that, that we've also seen. Mm -hmm. um, and then again, interspersed within that, I would suggest probably other types of minefields as well. Not necessarily to make it look linear, to make it look clean, mm. but to keep everybody guessing in terms of what is the best access route to take. Uh, so yes, uh, it's going to be a complex, complex uh, environment. Just, to just, to, just to sort of so I can get my sort of head uh, head around this a little bit. In terms of the, I mean, I know this is imprecise and it's difficult to be absolutely sure about this, but in terms of the depth in which these, there's a lot of talk basically. I mean, the reason why I'm asking about this in a bit more detail, Pete, is because how far through the initial point of the front line do the Ukrainians need to get before they get beyond this, these sophisticated defences? This is what everyone's asking. So I'm just wondering if you know, your, your own knowledge of how deep the minefields are is going to give us any kind of estimation in that. I mean, are we talking about a couple of miles? Are we talking about 20 or 30 miles? Um, I don't think we need to look at, we shouldn't look at it on that sort of linear okay. methodology. I think right. that, you know, at the, at the front line, you're talking maybe tens of kilometres to start yeah. with, okay. but spaced out. Yeah. And then you're looking at more fortified areas that they're protecting as well. Okay. Um, that depends whether, as we're seeing, whether you're going through Rebin down to Taknok or indeed down further to Melitopol. We're seeing not just horizontally laid across the, the battlefield, but also you know, vertically laid, if okay. you like, travelling east and west. So, so the, it, it is possible then, if, if they've had enough time, which they would presumably have, that 
this grinding advance is going to go on for an awful long time, if, they, if indeed they do keep advancing. Um, they're not going to break through and then all of a sudden, you know, I've got this almost, you know, first world war mentality, uh, thinking, well, once they get through the main layers of defences, it's going to be a lot easier going. But the, the way you're sort of painting it, Pete, they could have problems with these sorts of uh, defences for, for, you know, uh, hundreds of kilometres or at least scores of kilometres anyway. They could. Where minefields are most successful, though, is where they're covered by artillery fire, etc. Okay. Now, if you do have success yeah. and you have that sort of localised tactical success that encourages artillery not to be there, mm. actually your ability then in a military sense to clear those minefields becomes a lot of a much easier challenge. It's very interesting, isn't it, that, you know, in that context, you, you, you say the key element of defending a minefield is, is artillery support. They do seem to be concentrating on trying to knock out as much artillery as possible at the moment. I know they've done that before, but so this is all preparation, isn't it? I mean, you know, where, where this is all going to lead is is all speculation. But it's interesting that that does seem to be a you know a sensible um, means of negating what is all, always traditionally been you know, Russia's strong point. It's artillery. Yeah, and of course artillery needs feeding. It's a hungry beast yeah. uh, and therefore interdicting lines of communication yeah. with a view to slowing up logistics is an important part as well as just taking out artillery pieces. What, what, sorry to interrupt, but one, one last thing, uh, Pete, on the, on the your guys and girls down there. I mean, are, how quickly are they going into the bits that have been very recently liberated, for example? I mean, you know, the, the Ukrainians are, are moving forward, not, not rapidly, but they are retaking ground. Are, you, are, you, are some of your people already going into those areas? We were into uh, Kharkiv and Mikhailov uh, Oblast some six to eight weeks after yeah. uh, the conflict had yeah. been completed and the territories you know, recaptured by the Ukrainians. At the moment, because a lot of those battles are occurring within the conflict zone, yeah. as, as an organisation, we're encouraged by the Ministry of Defence and others not to get within 20, 30 kilometres of that contact zone, largely because of the artillery threat and the yeah. safe, because it would be pointless us putting our people in harm's way of, of direct fire for the job yeah, that we're doing, and it would just cause a burden to everybody else. But we'd anticipate certainly within you know four to five weeks of significant parts of Ukraine being reoccupied that we would be in there um, with our teams. I would be deploying teams from Mykolaiv, from Kharkiv, uh, and indeed a number of our staff who are up in Kiev and Brovery come from those southern um, oblasts like Donetsk and Zaporizhia, exactly. So for them, it would be about going home, returning home, and then actually making home clear from exposure yeah. hazards. Okay. So we're, as an organization, now we're at uh, 900 strong. We're looking to be at 1,200 by the end of the year. We started in Kramatorsk in 2015. We got up to about 400 staff at that time. Uh, but then since the full-scale invasion, there was obviously the opportunity, the need to relocate to, to get out of those southern um, areas. Mm -hmm. And that's just a train you can hear in the background at the moment, that rumble. Um, so full-scale invasion happened and we were at 400 strong in the Kramatorsk region at that point. Mm -hmm. uh, and very quickly, uh, we were able to relocate several hundred of our staff who wished to join us to the north of Ukraine where we were able then really just to, to pause and have a look and see how we could regrow the organisation, knowing that there was going to be a need for us into the future. Yeah. And since those early days, we've grown from 200, that nucleus that we were able to take from Kramatorsk, to some 900 now, with a view to getting to 1,200 by the end of this year. And that's a combination of people that do non-technical survey, that's actually going out onto the ground, 
seeing where the contamination is, but also, and as importantly, understanding where the contamination is not. Mm. You've heard probably many times that some 178,000 square kilometers of Ukraine has been subjected to conflict, and, and it has, that is fair, but it doesn't mean that 178,000 square kilometers are contaminated by landmines. Many of those areas, very high percentages, have literally just got UXO scattered around them. Mm -hmm. In some areas in Haki, for example, where we've been out into fields uh, and regions, um, one of our non-technical survey teams researched an area of some 1,000 hectares, of which we only found 3% of that to be contaminated. Mm -hmm. Now, that's just an indication of one field. It's not going to be the same across all of Ukraine. But if you applied that, that logic to that number, you can see the, the actual levels of contamination are going to be much, much lower than that. Mm -hmm. So this is our current deployment map. These are where our clearance teams are. At the moment, we've got some 53 manual teams out and about on the ground, a number of mechanical support teams as well. Uh, high concentration in the north and of some of the smaller minefields that yeah. we're going to take you out to have a look at a little bit later. Mm -hmm. But as you can see, growing numbers of teams in Mikolaev and in the Kharkiv region as well. Yeah. And then on top of that, the survey teams that are out there identifying where the contamination is, which then enables us to follow up with our clearance assets. But importantly for, for Ukraine, being able to demonstrate where the ordnance and items are not, where normality can get back to life as, as quickly as possible. This is just a, an overview that, that records the number of civilian casualties that we, through open source, have been able to pick up since the beginning of the war. Uh, and as you can see, these two colours here demonstrate the major injury-causing uh, event, and that is anti-vehicle mines uh, and anti-personnel mines. And there's some... 70% of all injuries at the moment are caused by either an anti-vehicle mine or an anti-personnel mine. And typically they are uh, being found and initiated where people are going through routine activities such as driving, but probably driving off-road, not on metal roads, mm -hmm. in the agricultural sector where farmers and farmers' machinery are being subjected to um, anti-vehicle mines and the like as well. So, so just re reading the numbers there, I mean, that, that is total casualties caused by ordnance of a thousand? Of a thousand, yeah. And, yeah. and of course, that, that's not as attributable to the conflict in and of itself. Yeah. This is through, through the remains of yeah. items and ordnance that are around. What we're not capturing are the fatalities, casualties of, of conflict in that regard. This yeah, is just the items that have been left behind. And this gives you a, a sense here of the variety of different types of munitions that we are discovering, mm -hmm. ranging from a selection of anti-vehicle mines, the TM62 being the most popular, and then through a range of um, anti-personnel mines, whether that's the small PFM or butterfly mine, which mm -hmm. just has a very small explosive charge of some 30 grams, which is enough certainly to an adult to take off the toes or the lower foot, ranging up to larger mines like the OZM, banding mine which is tripwire initiated and then once the tripwire is initiated it leaps up into the ground by about one and a half meters detonates and then there's a 360 degree fragmentation mm. pattern that is effective out to 25 meters is that equivalent to the old um, american claymore the claymores are more here the mons oh, okay. to, which are directional uh, anti-personnel mines which are effectively sort of a concave with an explosive fill with a ball bearing mix inside them. Um, and then they would detonate towards oncoming infantry. And they can be either command initiated, i.e. you know, with a, with a battery or a remote switch, mm -hmm. or indeed tripwire initiated. 
And then we have a number of what we call ground preparation assets. Our people are very effective, but machinery can really speed up the process of, of clearing the land, whether that is preparation in terms of removing tripwire threats, etc., or just being better placed to enable our follow-up manual teams to be able to go more swiftly through the, the clearance process. And as you can see, a variety of platforms that we use, there are a variety of tactics that can be used to employ uh, whatever we seek to, to use. You'll hear a lot out here at the moment about the need to get mechanical assets um, at scale into into Ukraine. And, and that is fair. You know, mechanization is certainly a way of increasing the tempo and the clearance. But when we look further south into the currently occupied territories, the complexity of some of those areas is going to be quite remarkable, where you've got trench lines overlaid with anti-vehicle mines, anti-personnel mines, booby traps potentially as well in amongst all of that. And then, of course, on top of that, you've then got the peppering of the real estate through artillery rounds, thousands and thousands and thousands of munitions um, that are functioning in those areas, of which there's going to be a, a percentage that have not functioned either, which again just adds another layer of complexity into, into the clearance operations. Just as a quick sidebar, Pete, there, there's of course been a lot of chat in the press about the use of cluster munitions, um, which the Ukrainians now have, we gather, and have been deploying. How, how tricky and how, how, how problematic is that for you and the work that Halo is going to be doing in the, in the months and years to come? We treat a cluster munition as we would any item of explosive, whether it's a, a landmine or any other form of unexploded ordnance. Each one requires a clearance plan to be able to associate to, to, to clear it. Um, in some instances, you know, the, the cluster munition itself is relatively straightforward and simple to dispose of once you've located it. And one of the other things that we do a lot of within the programme is, is research and development. And by that, it's trying to make our clearance methodologies more efficient so that clearly it's costing us less to be able to do the business that we do. That's really where I want to take you on that for now. I think what we'll take, we'll take the opportunity now to take you out to a minefield. Yeah. Uh, it's to the north from here, about 30 minutes. It's got a variety of threats to it. Most of them are uh, anti-personnel, but there are also anti-vehicle threats. We're using a combination of manual clearance and mechanical preparation. So you're in that one task site, you'll get the opportunity to see a variety of our methodologies. Brilliant. Thanks so much, Pete. Okay, we'll take a quick break there. And next up, I'll discuss what I saw at the minefield and an interview with one of the Halo team who had escaped from Russian-occupied Mariupol. Welcome back. Well, sadly, I wasn't present for this uh, trip to visit the Halo team, but I was obviously fascinated to hear what went on there and what uh, what the guys saw and heard. But Saul, tell me, what, what was it actually like visiting uh, the, the site of the initial clearances? Well, it was very interesting, the location, first of all, Patrick. I mean, you and I know, having uh, been in Kyiv, apart from the air raid sirens and the missiles coming in, it doesn't really feel like a city under siege a city at war but a year earlier of course it had been and the russians got very close to the outskirts of kiev which is pretty much where we were going to almost the furthest point of the russian advance and 
One of the points about the Russians getting into that position is that to defend themselves, they left a lot of ordnance on the ground, so anti-personnel mines, anti-vehicle mines. And so it was a location where a lot of mines had been identified that we went to have a look. And just how dangerous this business of clearing the mines, Patrick, uh, was immediately brought home to us when we walked through an area with the right protective equipment and someone pointed out not only a large crater in the ground, but also some things in the tree. So I had a look up in the air and uh, as was being explained by the translator, this was uh, a position where someone who had been clearing a mine had been blown up into the tree and his clothes were still there. I, uh, you know, I felt it was a bit weird actually that no one actually got up into the tree to take them down, but maybe that's just a warning for the locals. Um, it was a strange feeling, I have to say, being in the middle of a minefield. Uh, we'd been assured that it was absolutely safe. And of course, they were taking all the right precautions. And one of the fascinating things about Halo, and one of the reasons why it takes so long to clear a patch of ground is because they are so painstaking. The people who work for the organization are on the whole, not bomb experts themselves, but they've been trained. So, you know, they have to go through the ground very slowly and surely. Tell us something about the background of these guys. They're pretty diverse, isn't it, from what I understand? Yeah, they come from all over the place. I mean, a lot, a lot of them are locals, of course. So they're, they are, you know, civilians who've really just attached themselves to Halo. They want to do something for the war effort. They want to do something to, you know, make their country a safer place. But you've got people from all over the world, too. There was a an ex-US Ranger, ex-US Special Forces are there. And of course, while we were there, so you've got the people from Halo working away, but you also got the locals who were trying to go about their normal business. So there was a very bizarre sight, I have to say, Patrick, of us in the middle of the minefield with all the little sticks donating where it's safe to go and where it's not. And then just plodding his way through the middle of all of this, the track, uh, was a local, a farmer, with his horse and cart. Um, so it was pretty bizarre. And in the background, of course, you could see signs where the Russians had been, uh, military checkpoints, destroyed buildings. So it was really the, the first time I saw on the ground in Ukraine the actual visual signs of war and how close it got to Kyiv. That was all absolutely fascinating. I wish I'd been there. Well, coming up next, we've got an interview uh, with one of the Halo team, a translator called Ivan, who comes from Mariupol, and he was there through all the dramatic and tragic events at the start of the war. So tell us your name first. Right. Uh, my name is Ivan Yurmilov. Nice to meet you, sir. Yeah, very good to meet you. So how did you get involved with Halo? What were you doing before you started working with them? Uh, I've worked for uh, various non-governmental organization, helping people. So I was searching for an opportunity to help my country, help my people, and get some practice in English and meet new international friends. Yeah, and which part of Ukraine do you come from originally? Uh, I'm from Mariupol, from Donbass. And yes, I was a witness of uh, war. I spent four months... Uh, when Mariupol was sieged by Russian forces inside of the city without an ability to leave, unfortunately. Mm. We, we uh, interviewed um, one of the British Marines who was caught up defending one of the steelworks with a Ukrainian Marine battalion um, recently, and his experience was horrendous. I mean, particularly grim. 
just without going into too much detail, because I'm sure you don't want to uh, talk too much about it, but can you tell us a little bit about the experience of being a civilian inside the city? It was a living hell, and probably nobody would like to get such experience. Uh, in movies, uh, the war seems to be cool, it's fun, but in reality, it's more about the starvation, about... Uh, death of people you love and you like your friends everybody start to be missing uh you can't get a contact you don't have enough food you don't have an opportunity to leave so yeah it's pretty grim mm. and it's uh, you know it's great to see that you got out w what route did you use to leave the city one of my friends uh, came from russia uh using the russian number plates uh, to get uh, closer to Mariupol, then he changed the plates for Ukrainians and uh, entered the Mariupol, the siege port, and he helped us to escape. We had long route through Berdyansk, through occupied territories. Uh, I had an opportunity, a chance to leave through Crimea, that's currently occupied by Russian, but I saw that it will be a kind of, I don't know, I didn't want to be a traitor, so I decided to go back in Ukraine, even though I'm now under conscription and cannot leave the country without the permission. Okay, so you have to be working in some kind of effort to assist the, uh, the your country to assist the war, and working for Halo is one of those one of those possibilities. Uh, because I'm not taking part in uh, fights, I'm not a part of military. I need to help my country somehow. I need to find a way to be of use and Hela is uh, the best option for me. I can use my skills and my knowledge to help people carry out the clearance, release the land and make everybody's life easier. So yes, I found myself in pretty good positions here. And tell us what were you what was your occupation or what were you doing before the war, the me the, the full-scale invasion I should say began. Uh, to be honest, I was just uh, having the best time of my life, dating <laughs> girls, spending time with my friends, but Stu work changed Stu Student or, or working? Yes, then? yes, student. I was okay. a long, long time student. Yeah, nothing wrong with that. I did a PhD. Like, you can keep being a student for a long, long time if you want to. And in the future, what do you think you might, might end up doing? Uh, I guess that uh, I'll have to spend at least 30 years to finish with the clearance of Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And I think... I might come to be useful for our organization, for Halo Trust or any other NGO, but I would like to stay here because Halo now has become a part of my life. Yeah. It's more like family. It's more the family than just an office job. Yeah. No, it's, anyway, it's great to hear. You said your name was Ivan? Yes, Ivan. 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 Ivan, very nice to meet you. Thank you for talking to us. Thank you, sir. Okay, well, that's all we have time for this week. Do join us on Friday when I'll be back and we'll discuss what's been so far an absolutely fascinating week. <laughs> <laughs>